As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Autoline After Hours with John McElroy and, uh, and Gary Vasilash. Episode 519 for July 30th of 2020, Ford Bronco, designing an icon without going retro. Watch Autoline After Hours live at Autoline.tv every Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 12 p.m. Pacific. You can subscribe to this podcast for free by searching for Autoline in iTunes, Stitcher, or YouTube. Autoline After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Borg Warner, propulsion solutions that support a clean, energy-efficient world. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Gary, you're out there. How you I doing? I am, John. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. You know, this show, man, what can I say? It's always a blast to do. You know, and it occurs to me that while, you know, we're in this horrible, horrible pandemic situation, um, one of the good things is that we've had a show consistently. With the exception of the 4th of July break, we've been going straight through, which I, I think is uh, is nice. Yeah, you know, we get to pat ourselves on uh, the back, and Katie and Carmen behind the scenes here can do the same thing. Absolutely. So 
I believe it was last week when I was talking about this day in history, and I said, you know, it's, at some point, I wonder what it'll be said about this period. I would submit that today is a day that will go down in history with the um, NASA launching the Mars 2020 project, which includes the Perseverance, a six-wheeled plutonium-powered rover vehicle that will be landing on Mars in mid-February. And I, I just think that this is this is extraordinary. I think this is one of the coolest, coolest motor vehicles of all time. And plus, there's a little helicopter that goes along, so it'll be the first time there'll be flight on a different planet, which is which is also very cool. Yeah, no, I love what you're talking about there. Plutonium. Who needs electrons or hydrogen when you got plutonium? Yeah, I, I was just wondering if, 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 God forbid, the rocket had crashed into the ocean, I imagine they'd have to get after that rather quickly to uh, get the plutonium out of there. Yeah, well, it's not the first time they sent up a, a nuclear reactor in a spacecraft, so uh, I'm sure they got plans B, C, and D in case anything goes wrong. Yeah, I bet you're right. bet you're right. Hey, let's bring in uh, our journalist colleague, Chris Pockert from Roadshow. In fact, he's not just from any Roadshow. He's from Roadshow by CNET. Hey, thanks very much, guys. Great to be back. Good to see Good you. Good to have you, Chris. Yeah. How you been enduring this period of uh, pandemic? Uh, keeping strangely busy. Um, busier than ever, actually, work-wise, in, in part for one of the reasons we're here to talk today about the, uh, the Bronco. That's kept me mighty busy. <laughs> Good well, busy. Yeah, good busy. And, and speaking of that, let's bring in Paul Rafe, the chief designer on Bronco. We may as well start talking about it. But, Paul, thanks for joining us on the show. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I, I mean, th there's a million things that, that we want to ask you. But let, let's start off with the title of the show that, you know, we came up with today, Ford Bronco Designing an Icon Without Going Retro. And I got to believe that was one of the things that you guys talked about, because I personally know designers don't like de being accused of doing a retro design. Uh, that's absolutely correct. No, we, we didn't want to design a, a retro vehicle. We wanted to design the right vehicle for the people that we were hoping are going to buy it uh, and, for, and executing it in a way which, which makes a lot of sense. Uh, of course, we were interested in reminding ourselves of a period of the Broncos history. Um, uh, and we were pretty studious in making sure that we understood the key elements that we wanted to bring forwards. Um, but yeah, we, we stretched ourselves in every direction uh, from, uh, from, from pretty uh, stretchy designs um, through to um, a bandwidth of others. Uh, but we ended up where we are. And uh, so far, people seem to quite like it. Paul, had there ever been a consideration that you wouldn't go for you know more of the square proportions and that you guys would do something more like a land rover evoke no definitely <laughs> not uh you know you listen to a little Simple instinct enough. yeah you listen to that little little instinctive voice and you you know the right way to go um that was not i think in any any of the doodles that we created in fact the doodles the drawings that we started with were not were quite unconventional we didn't do the normal car design sketch stuff the big big sketches with beautiful colors and everything's looking very sort of slick and swoopy uh from an appearance point of view we started off by really analyzing problems uh and storyboarding days in the lives of the the five 
people that we were um, designing for. And it was odd, actually, that the aesthetic of the vehicle began to appear in, in drawings just like this, you know. And, um, and we were able to go from illustrations like this straight into CAD uh, and uh, virtual reality. So um, here there's Anthony's actually sketching around telling a story. Uh, and this is a Nia's sketch. And he's, he's again, telling a, telling a tale about a moment where the vehicle's passing through um, the hands of family members, the dad's handing off the, the vehicle to the to the daughter. She's going off to college in our storytelling. You know, she's having fun with her mates here. And actually, it was, it was through through picturing those moments that we created this sort of rich imagery. And uh, we were able to draw, draw down those ideas and turn them into 3D data really fast. Has um, that storyboarding process been done before at Ford? Or was this just a new idea because you were approaching this in a different way? Um, I think it's pretty new. Um, and I think the time's right for it as well. Um, uh, you know, throughout my career, I've, I've, I've tackled projects in all sorts of different ways, but it just felt like the right thing to do. Um, Ford's got a really defined and very, very efficient uh, process that really works on, on quality and timeliness and speed. But um, we, we need, I think we all kind of realized that we needed to do things a bit differently to squeeze enough Bronco into the process and actually get out of the, our, our initial research, the um, um, the right amount of depth, so that when we went into uh, the more advanced stages, we we'd got these ideas together, um, and we had five customers to design for. Normally, the process you know you've got a sort of notional idea of this person that you're designing for, the target customer, as we might call them, and they tend to be a bit of a nebulous amalgamation of. Um, facts and statistics and volumes and numbers and profiles and we put them together and give them a name but in this particular case the five people we're designing for five not one they're actually real people and uh, we'd really spend time with them so we had a, a lot of um sense of what they wanted i i would liken it to we're all guys you know it's the day before christmas you're standing in the shop you're trying to buy a present for that person you've got two things in your hand the clock's ticking it's nearly five o'clock and you're not quite sure which one to get and you just instinctively know that one or the other is the right thing to do so i think we were drawing in those initial phases you know little presents for the customer that, uh, of the future um and it was quite a different process paul is that or the first five- time you, you- Oh, sorry. Is this the first time that you've used these storyboard approaches at Ford? And and as a follow-up to that, too, how does drawing these scenarios help you narrow down the design of the vehicle that you want? I, I think it is pretty much the first time that we've, we've followed this approach. Um, and it was a fun approach. Um, and, is somebody um, typing? We're getting some typing noise coming through here. Sorry, Paul, go ahead. <laughs> uh, um, so your question was, uh, is it the first time we use the storyboarding? Yes. And the second part of your question was, sorry, what? John? And the second part was, how does storyboarding these different scenarios out camping and doing things with the vehicle help you narrow down the, the, the design that you want to go with? Actually, I think it helped us explode the range of ideas that we were going to go with. Um, I think and that, that really helped with the, the digital process that we immediately leapt into. So normally in, a, in, the, in, the, in the car industry, you, you do lots of imagery, ideas, a bandwidth of potential designs, and then you get into making models of things. And they're typically things like uh, scale clay models, very much an industry standard. 
we didn't do that. We skipped that completely. That wasn't what we needed to do at all. There's a limit to how many scale clay models you can make. And in fact, actual fact, I think we started off with 19 full CAD models, uh, interactive interior exterior models that we could put the goggles on, the VR goggles on, and, and go and play with and sit in and see out of. And we learned a great deal from that. So that initial phase generated vast amounts of data. And actually, the dish issue for us was, was then saying, well, hang on. We've, we've come to the conclusion that the ideal component, whatever, for this particular customer is not really going to work for that other extreme customer on our bandwidth. So what are we going to do about that? That was an interesting conundrum. Paul, you said that these were real people. Were these real people who were on the Bronco team or were they real people who are out somewhere in the country? Uh, real people that's uh, there in the country and very different in their profile as well. Like one of them, um, a young woman, she lived in the city, uh, whereas, you know, we had a much older uh, guy who was really into the community of off-roading and Bronco. And then we had another guy who was, um, uh, we, his story was on the edge. I mean, he's, he's a real extreme uh, off-road driver. So when you had this breadth of people and the sort of um, the experience of, of um, learning from their life experience and seeing what they've done to their own vehicles and how they go about their day-to-day business. And then I guess the skill of, of critical thinking is then going, is that really working out okay? Is, it, is, is that really the ideal outcome? Uh, and then you start, that, that, that gets you going and you start noodling away at it and start scratching away at it and go, well, you know what? If, um, you know, um, if, if this driver is uh, uh, short, how are they going to get stuff on the roof? And you start thinking through little problems like that well the reality is you know we, we all struggle a little bit but can we make things a bit better that's that's where the storyboarding began to play out these uh, potential uh, solutions that were you know following an unconventional path but i think really valid so i know you didn't want to be slavishly retro but i think it's important obviously to acknowledge bronco has a long lineage uh, and you've done that i think pretty masterfully but what were the key elements in order to do that from previous designs? The, is it, you know, one piece grill or a swage line or, or what is it that, that really um, those elements that you decided were necessary um, that you could bring to this vehicle? Yeah. I mean, there, there was several generations of Bronco. I think we we all collectively um, had a sense that the, the right one was the first generation vehicle. In fact, that's the truest Bronco. Um, so, and then you analyze uh, the, the the vehicle in a number of different ways, but just in terms of appearance, you know, we'd break the break the appearance of that vehicle down into its single piece grill, you know, with lights inside it, and then those lights bisect with a single line. I mean, nobody does grills like that any longer. The lights are always sort of hanging outside somewhere, so that that was in itself an unusual um, thing to try and bring back and then repurpose, reprofile. Um, the swage line down the side, you know, the original vehicle had that. Um, we didn't bring it back simply because of that. But, you know, we also wanted to make the doors really slim. They had to be safe. They needed to package all the kind of good stuff that we're going to put into them. But we needed to make those doors nice and flat. And actually, sheet metal doesn't want to be flat. Sheet metal wants to do all sorts of different things, right? So uh, adding a swage line through the metal is an effective way of making the metal stable, Um, um and you, therefore, you can um, you can make the, the the door sort of more robust as a result. Um, the single piece tail lights they just got a perfect rationale. You know, we don't need redundant lights and decorative light elements on a on a swing gate. 
we've, we've put the lights vertically because that's the best place for them to be um, in terms of practical use and also meeting all the legal zones. Then the fenders have got the peaks at the front. We thought that was a really cool feature from the original vehicle. It was there on the Mustang as a sort of styling flourish, but on the Bronco, those peaks, they told you where the corner of the truck was. Just brilliant. So let's do something when that's bring those back uh, and then uh, and play those out through a different way. The general profile, of course, is very much a two-box vehicle with its you know, level belt line and upright windshield. Um, you know, all of those things are very practical. Um, you know, if you want really great visibility forwards, and of course you do when you're off-road, definitely, you know, an upright A-pillar makes all the sense in the world. You don't want the belt line rising towards the, the rear because when you look over your shoulder, you can't see out of the vehicle. It's, you know, when you start to break down the, the uh, functional criteria, you end up with a vehicle that has got this sort of slightly nostalgic sort of form factor. But it's all there for good reason, as is the short overhangs and the, the great you know, breakover angles and so on. So it was an amalgam of, you know, graphic elements that and sculptural elements from the original vehicle that we brought forwards, overlaid with all of the practical architectural elements that, you know, it was going to make the Bronco be, you know, this, this great off-road vehicle. And Paul, you mentioned that you guys went to CAD very quickly and yeah. did a VR, but you also did some some rather innovative mock-ups using more fundamental materials than one would expect car designers to use. Talk about that. Yeah, that's right. So we did go into VR, um, into a very, very quick uh, digital modeling. But then we'd arrived at a point where we had all of these proposals in, uh, and we needed to get into into 3D. Now, what normally happens in the car industry is you would you would make clay models, full size clay models. Um, uh, as, a, as when you go into full size, it would be a clay model. Um, but that only gives you the exterior appearance. And this vehicle is a very interactive inside outside uh, entity. So our first model that we built was um, was was made out of this packing material for speed. Um, and so um, that's an unusual process. But it meant that we could pr produce a property that uh, we could get in and out of and play with in this way. Here we've got Marty uh, gazing on at what we did. I I'm going to tell you a little story about this picture, but this is our very first um, uh, model that we made. And, um, and it's credit to our shops, our workshops. They, they work to such an amazing standard. I mean, it's phenomenal. Nothing but perfection is perfect, you know, is ideal for them. And I, and I said to them, look, I want to make a model. Um, and I want to, I want to be able to get in it and I want to make it out of packing material. And as soon as we've made it, I want to chop it up. And we were, had meeting after meeting with them going, but surely you'll want to do, you but you want to put clay on it. And I was like, I don't want to put clay on it. This is what I want to do. And they, and they, I think they uh, were very patient with me and they, um, they came along and they, they did exactly what I wanted. But the great advantage of having this thing was that we could stand on it, jump on it, cut into it, attach things to it, experiment. And in that particular instance there, after having driven our health and safety people slightly crazy, I wanted the vehicle tipped over at an angle so we could at least begin to reflect the sort of circumstance of using an off-road vehicle off-road. Every design studio, car design studio in the world is exactly the same. The floor is perfectly flat. The, uh, the models are placed on steel plates in the floor that are absolutely perfectly flat. They're all lined up in a row and they sit underneath strip lights so that we can analyze the, the surfaces the contour lines that the lights throw on the on the shiny surfaces. Well, the world isn't flat. The wild is not doesn't obey those rules. So how do we how do we sort of simulate the experience of being off road? 
And what we noticed um, some of our designers doing was they were creating instrument panels, for example, that had depressions to put things in. Um, and we were saying, but really, when you're at a precipitous angle, are you sure everything's going to stay in there? Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. So actually, we tipped the model up. We put the cell phone in the in the depression on the instrument panel, and it sailed out of the window. Uh, and that, that led to then, well, here's a problem. Let's try and fix it. So the, the fix to that was then ultimately has led to this um, – uh, a number of features actually, but also the bar that we can attach to our instrument panel um, of the of the Bronco that will enable the customers to fit items to it across the top of the instrument panel and keep everything in place. But that was also really helpful to um, help work out how we were going to do the grab handles, the contact points, so that when the vehicle's over an angle, how do you get in and out of it? The sight lines, you know, what do you see out of? You know, is the door in a convenient place? Is, is the belt line too high or is it too low we could we could play all these stories out in fact we made lots of bits and pieces to add to the model accordingly that the the wealth of knowledge that you then get back from that is is incredible it's it's a it's a it's a brilliant process you might wonder why we didn't take the model out into the wild of course but of course they're they're top secret you know and i would have loved to have taken that model and stuck it in landscape somewhere but no way so we had to do the best we could in the in the space You've talked about how functionality has impacted the design process of some of the interior elements, things like the grab handle and the broadened device bar. Um, I think the same seems to be true for the outside. And you've basically built, you know, kind of a, a blank canvas or, or a Lego building block to which customers are probably going to take things off and put things on. Um, how does that impact your design process? You're basically, you know, designing this beautiful thing that somebody else is going to take apart. It makes it a lot more complicated um, because you're, you're not just designing the, the, the vehicle in its single entity. It's, this is the form that it's going to be in different colors with maybe different wheel sizes. You're, you're thinking through the, the, the scenarios of, well, you know, when we've got this bumper or the other bumper or the bumper that follows that or the other ones that the aftermarket might produce. You know, so everything has this very long sequence of some predictable steps and others which are completely unpredictable. Um, and it's, uh, you know, you obviously want to execute the vehicle that we're going to produce in the very best possible way, but we also need to set it up in such a way that our, um, our customers can personalize it, uh, via our channels, but also by the, uh, the accessory, uh, industry in the best possible way, because, you know, when we look, you know, there's no such thing as a standard Bronco any longer. They've all changed. They've all become this other thing. And one of the, the very first lessons I think that we, that we, we got was, uh, understanding just about the journeys these vehicles had taken through the lives of people that own them. You know, it was the kid's car that became the couple's car that became the family car that became the, you know, these vehicles transformed throughout their lives. And so we were tr looking at this, this, this new vehicle and thinking, okay, how can we, how can we set it up in such a way that this vehicle can can have that same experience? And so in 30 years time plus, you know, these things, there will be no such thing as a standard new Bronco. They'll all be different. Uh, so it makes life very complicated, Chris, um, but also good fun. Paul, what's interesting about the design to me is it's it's rugged, but it doesn't look angry. It doesn't look super macho. Like I said, it looks rugged, but it looks friendly as well. It, it strikes me that this is a vehicle that could appeal to consumers 
who otherwise might never consider a four by four, a serious off-road four by four, particularly women. I hope you feel this for everybody. Um, I don't think we really wanted to make it look angry um, or intimidating at all. You know, we, we want to tread lightly in the landscape and, uh, and not brutalize the landscape into submission. We, we want the vehicle not to scare people. Uh, we don't want it to look, you know, crazy happy, you know, delirious. We need to find that sort of sweet, sweet spot. And um, an element of that is the, the sort of anthropomorphic quality of it. The, the, the cars have eyes. They, you know, they have a face. And then tuning all those elements in and out just to make sure that you've got the right sort of personality being projected is, is part of a car designer's stock and trade. I'm pleased that, that you like it, that you think we've, uh, we've, we've done a good thing. I did. Paul, I want to follow up on Chris's question a little bit. So you guys designed the doors so they could be taken off, and you designed bags to put the doors in. You've ways to take the windows out and store them. And, and a number of functions that strike me as being what industrial designers would do rather than vehicle designers would do. And you talked about the problem solving that you looked at. Okay, these are things that we need to take into account. And again, you know, the classic industrial design methodology, not the car stylus. Um, did you have industrial designers on your team working on this vehicle? Uh, I think, no, not specifically. Um, I think, you know, car design schools teach a blend of car styling, but they, they teach industrial design fundamentally. Uh, the industry historically has had a very strong sort of styling component to it, but we were really needing just to reach back into our into our you know trained skills of industrial design just industrial design applied to a vehicle um you know we refer to it as critical thinking you, you need to keep analyzing and assessing everything that's going on and working out whether you can make it a little bit better so the doors are i think a really good example on the vehicle because they are technically engineering wise even legally credibly integrated into the overall vehicle um and then the handling of them into the trunk, the use of the bags, the way that the whole thing, madly complicated. But it, the, actually, interestingly enough, it came from an a, analyzing one of those five customers. Now, this person didn't say, if you're designing me a Bronco, could you do the following thing? Not at all, because people just get used to how the world is, right? But this particular um, individual, she was a nanny. She was living in, so therefore she's living in someone else's house. And so we, we sort of identified a little bit of attention because by day, of course, she's driving a vehicle. It's got to be a safe vehicle. She's putting somebody else's children in it. But like every nanny on the planet, as soon as they hit five o'clock, she's off. You know, she's going to, the vehicle needs to transform and become this other thing, this, this play machine and, and a social space. So part, taking the doors off was something that we want, kind of wanted to make quick, really easy. But then we had this sort of, we, we alighted on the issue of, so where do the doors go? Because she doesn't own a garage. She's got a room in someone else's house. And then um, we sort of thought, well, if she's, if she's moving that quick, maybe they need to, what if we could put them inside the vehicle? Then there's always a place for them to go. Now, in order to do that, you've got to make them small enough to go in the vehicle. And then that, that took us then to the um, frameless doors. So the process of removal is you drop the glass down into the door, you swing the door open, and now the door's nice and small. 
there's a few things we've got to do there. We've got to make the door really slim. So coming back to that comment about putting sniffless into the into the metal using the using the design, but also some real efficiencies in how we we um, engineered the doors out. But then, you know, she was she's not a, she's not a huge person. So how's she going to go and do this? So we need to carry the weight of the door. First of all, make the door, door as light as possible. So it's it's alloy, it's light as we can make it. But then we need to put the right contact points onto the door. We need to make sure that the removal process of the door is really easy. So it's like one tool. The electrical connection to the door doesn't require a degree in electrical engineering. It's just a simple plug. It's no more complicated than taking a socket out of the wall. Okay? Um, the check arm doesn't require a second process to remove because the check arm or the check is, mount, is built into the door. So that just comes straight off with it. So it's a really simple process. And then the, the, the bags came in. As a, as a means of not only protecting the door when they're being handled, because we saw lots of scratched up uh, doors from other manufacturers, but also as a, as a way of um, shouldering the weight of the, of, the, of the door and making it easy to manhandle around. So um, because you can lift it with your hands, but if you can support it equally on your shoulder as well, that makes a, a much more uh, easy process. So there it, there, there, that's one end of that whole kind of process. But the other side of it is... In order to make the doors small enough, we needed to take the mirrors off them, and we needed to put the mirrors onto the body. Now you could say there's nothing new under the sun about that because old vehicles always had the mirrors on the on the fender, right? But they didn't have to deal with the legislation that we had to have to deal with. So the legislation on mirrors is is extremely um, detailed uh, and exacting, and you've got to get it right. So one thing is true: the the further forward you mount the mirror. Either the bigger the mirror needs to become, the further out it needs to go, and that's not ideal for an off-road vehicle, uh, or the more you've got to tuck the body in, and that's not something we wanted to do either. And then when you look across the inside of the vehicle, you can see we've got the grab handles on the instrument panel. We've placed them there specifically for through our learnings about how to hold ourselves into position and how to haul ourselves into the vehicle on uneven ground, and they're getting in the way of the mirror. So, And, then, and the, the mirrors, of course, sit near an A-pillar. The A-pillar's got a structural function to take. My goodness me, the problems, you know, and by scratching away at them, you, you sort of get down to the point where we've got the legal mirror, we've got all the structure, we've got this tremendously safe roll structure around us, we've got the visibility that we want, we've got the handles in the right position, and now we can take the doors off and we can sort them on board the vehicle. Um, so it starts with a, an insight into one particular person in one particular circumstance, and then you play it out into an entire vehicle with a whole PD organization fixated on achieving something which is completely new, totally original. Um, and um, fortunately, we kind of got there. Yeah, you did. Hey, uh, hold, hold it. One, one, one sec, Chris. we got to take a quick commercial break. Hold that thought. We'll come back from that, and you can jump right into it. But first, a shout-out to our good friends at Borg Warner. The world is changing at an ever-increasing pace. No matter what the mode of transportation, there is always the need for an efficient propulsion system. And that's exactly what Borg Warner has been doing since the earliest days of the automotive industry. We create innovative mobility technologies that reduce energy consumption and emissions while improving performance. Our proven track record has made us an industry leader in forward-looking propulsion solutions for combustion, hybrid, and electric vehicles. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. All right, we're back talking all things Bronco with Paul Wraith, the chief design engineer on that. And Chris, I had cut you off. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, so we jumped right into Bronco for obvious reasons. It's very exciting, but we didn't really hear about your background very much. I know you've been at the company for about 20 years, but this is really your first go around with this type of vehicle, right? And and how was that experience for you? Because you know, certain people design passenger cars all the time, or they design commercial vehicles. Um, but this is a whole different audience that you're dealing with. You're right. So, I mean, one of the wonderful things as a designer working for Ford is that you, we have such breadth of projects, everything from Le Mans winning supercars through to semi-trucks. Um, um, and each time you get, you get a new brief, you've, you've really got to get under the skin of that brief and understand what the user needs. Um, and so my background is within Ford is is quite varied. I've I've worked on semi trucks. Uh, I spent about ten years designing commercial vehicles. Uh, I've worked on passenger cars. I've done e bikes. I've done racing cars, rally cars, circuit cars, um, electric vehicles. I've done all sorts of things. And, um, and you know we're always very eager. To, all designers are very eager to the next challenge. Um, and uh, Getting this challenge, starting this project, was, was absolutely fascinating because uh, it, it wasn't at the beginning my world, um, but it became absolutely, totally absorbing and is absolutely my world. So I thought it was interesting to learn that you designed the second generation Transit Connect and our friend Peter Harbury designed the first generation Transit Connect. Yeah, that was a fantastic project. Um, that was that was one of three actually that I was working on at the time over in Europe. The Connect comes here, but there's also the Custom and the uh, Courier over in Europe. Uh, one a little bit bigger, one a little bit smaller. Um, they're they're really exciting products to design. Actually, um, you'd think not. You think well, surely commercial vehicles, really? But actually, the owners of those people or the people who use them, my goodness me, they know their business fantastically well. You can't pull the wool over their eyes. Um, they're about as knowledgeable about their vehicles is the, that, that a track day driver would be about tire pressures and, you know, sort of 
differential settings on a supercar. They they really know their stuff, and that makes them a great audience to design for. Interestingly, I found, you know, we talked a little bit earlier on about how how complicated the um, the, the Bronco was to design for with all of its interchangeability of parts well actually commercial vehicles are a bit like that as well they come in so many different forms different wheelbases different heights different lengths sliding doors no sliding doors windows no windows um so i find it very exciting actually to sort of bring a little bit of those insights in into this project and when, at those moments where you think to yourself actually this is quite intimidating there's, there's a lot going on here you think yeah you know but what ford's pretty good at this stuff let's pull that resource let's bring those skills in from elsewhere in the company and let's make ourselves feel about a, bit, a little bit better about this. Um, yeah. You used the word intimidation. Um, and I wanted to use that word in my next question, because to me, this, this whole process of designing an icon all over again, it could be intimidating. Um, you know, it's, it's got different functional requirements. It's got, a, you know, a great history and a, a rabid fan base of this type of vehicle in general, not just the Bronco, but, um, you know, that other vehicle where you can take the doors off, um, that one too. Those, those owners and fans, they're probably more rabid than just about any supercar or muscle car fan you can find. That's a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was a lot of pressure. Um, I won't use the exact expression, but, uh, yeah, don't mess it up was said quite a lot and uh of course you know part of our, our research process is to to analyze as much information and data as we can possibly get hold of and part of that comes from social media and the forums and we're reading through this stuff looking at the expectation about what the public thought positively and also you know negatively what we were going to go and do but what was clear was that the, the level of passion was overwhelming um and uh, it was very motivational it was also very useful and insightful actually um we had to grow slightly thick skins uh <laughs> along the way perhaps but um uh we we take we take it we took it really seriously and i'm going to show you it, it i've said it a few times but i'll say it again you know it is the very first thing that the team think about in the morning without a doubt and it is the very last thing that we think about when we're going to go to sleep and we've been doing that every day for years and um you know we, we the the whole pd organization took a big brave pill to get on with this vehicle there was passion to do it but my goodness me the ambition you know and the determination to see that ambition through to the end was uh, was was phenomenal really phenomenal so it's been a it's been a it's been a, a very exciting process and um challenging Challenge is good, right? <laughs> it sure is. Paul, when you talk about things like uh, not wanting to do a clay, wanting uh, a mock-up built out of packing material, want to chop it all up, what it sounds like to me is you're talking about this customer-centric design process that Jim Hackett brought to Ford. Is that the case, and is this the first time you've gone through that process, and how would you differentiate it or describe it being differently from the old way of doing things? Um, it, it's, I think there is a, there is a sort of, there is a cadence, a pattern, a typical way that typical things are done. But when you approach an untypical problem, then you, rather than trying to squeeze the untypical problem into the typical process, you need to sort of step back and go, what does the process need to be to deal with this untypical situation? And then work, work around that way. I didn't 
sit at the beginning of this or any of us sit at the beginning of this and think, well, let's make packing material vehicles. It's just that we got to a point where we went, the normal process isn't enough. So let's let's find a different way. And I didn't know. I've never done a model like that before. So I didn't know that was going to be the right solution. We were taking a bit of a punt. Um, but that's okay. You know, you, you experiment. And if it works out, that was a good thing. And if it didn't, it's fine. Find another way. Keep, keep moving in a different way and be agile in the process of it. Um, I find it very refreshing, actually. It was exciting. Um, and we made some big decisions using some very low fidelity uh, uh, properties. In fact, um, I'll mention this one, but you know, there was a lot of debate about whether we should have a tailgate or a swing gate. And there are, there are pluses and negatives, and many of them for both scenarios. So we actually resolved which way we were going to go by, by taking a couple of those, those uh, rough models uh, and parking them back to back in the studio. And um, we, we mopped one up like it had a tailgate and we knocked the other one up like it had a swing gate. And we were talking here, we're talking hinges from Home Depot, right? It's just screwed into things to make them operate. Um, but because they're so lightweight, we couldn't hang spare tires on them as you'd imagine, because the whole thing would have just collapsed to the ground. So we, we made really incredibly rough spare tires out of uh, foam core. And the foam core was held together with duct tape. And the whole lot was just screwed <laughs> into the model. This is, this, this is all good. But we needed to simulate for a, for a tailgate, you know, like a device to swing the spare tire out of the way. So we did that by using a, um, uh, <laughs> just a piece of wood with, with a really rough hinge on it with foam core wheels suspended on it on a plank of plywood with these two vehicles back to back. And what we, we role played the situation of using the vehicle. And, um, and this, the situation we were describing was you were either reversed into your garage or you're parked in the street. How are you going to put something in the back of your truck? So we played out walking back to the truck with a bag of shopping except we didn't have any shopping. The only thing we actually had in the studio at that moment was a Ford GT supercar steering wheel. So we were pretending, like you do. So we were pretending that this was this is our shopping, and then we went through the process of trying to open this, you know, swing the tire out of the way and fold the tailgate down and flip the glass up, and then we tried the alternative approach of just using a swing gate, and it was quite obvious that that was the best solution, and that decision was made at I don't know eight o'clock at night one evening, you know, in the studio with the, with the executives with this silly steering wheel and there these these rubbish models, but you. You don't need to make it perfect. What you're trying to get is the, the truth of the situation and, and resolve it really, really quickly. We could have spent, you know, we've got the resources and the money to have 3D printed out everything and it would have looked amazing. It would have been Hollywood. But what was the point? Let's just get to the solution that we need to get to as quickly as possible, make the right decision and then move on. Paul, did, did people from other studios, your colleagues come in and look to see what you guys were doing and say you're crazy? Uh, a little bit, <laughs> but designers don't tend to sort of say this is crazy. Um, we we um, I think they they found it really fascinating actually. Uh, so yeah, they they swing by and say hello. Uh, we're we're a tight team, and I think they found it quite energizing. Um, I got you know the the sort of negative side of it was when we were doing big reviews and had made the the untypical properties. Mm. Or we'd made only things in physical form and not digital form. Or if it was digital, it was so vast in terms of what we'd created. It didn't fit in any, any of the drives. Um, so, yeah, I, we had a lot of kind of like, 
wide-eyed, like "What have you done?" Uh, type moments. But but uh, ultimately, um, you know, the, the leadership of the company was was completely on board with this. You know, designers are intrinsically a little bit chaotic and creative. Um, the system as a whole was just looking for great ideas to move forwards quickly, and our leadership was had got this fantastic appetite to 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 be this ambitious. So. Uh, um, the ups and downs in between were just, you know, just just collateral. It was all about progress and having fun, actually. So, is this a blueprint now for the way you'll develop future vehicles? I think there's learnings which are pertinent to to um, other vehicles as we go forwards. But, like I say, I think the the issue is working out what you think the problem is, and then finding out what the the right process might be to delve as closely into that problem as you can do, and then just inventing along the way. Maybe not being quite so straight jacketed about things but uh, we've got some fantastic tools to play with from the highest possible level uh, realization software uh, and all of our printing and, and uh, rapid prototyping equipment that we have all the way down to just a knife a cutting board and some phone call you know we can do amazing things paul i'm, I'm curious how you designed the, the the three vehicles you got the two and four door off one platform you've got the bronco sport off another platform yep were they done in the same studio? You kept them separate? Uh, how did you work that out? Yeah, they were done by basically the same team. Um, the, 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 my overall Bronco team's quite quite broad. Um, uh, the sport spent a little bit of time in a different studio, but only briefly because we just we were building so many things, we were running out of space. But by and large, they were built together. Um, and that's great. Um, in fact, one of my... One of my Bronco designers had a lovely proposal, really nice, Brian. Um, but it, you know what? It, it really wanted to be a sport. So we, we sat together and I said, look, I think I love you, Bronco, but it really wants to be a sport. And um, and he was a sport and we he transferred over onto that vehicle and we, we pushed it forward. So, um, yeah, there was, a, there was a sort of designed in sense of Bronco that we were bringing to the um, – to the sport. Uh, it's a terrific little vehicle. I mean, absolutely fantastic. I've had the privilege of, of driving on a few occasions and um, I'm super impressed with it. It is highly capable. Um, it feels like a big truck, even though it's compact. Uh, we did a vast amount of work to try and get the approach and departure angles as aggressive as they could be. The front end is super short. It's got the uh, architecture of bon- Bronco um, built in. It's got the upright windshield. It's got the very, very level um, belt line. It's got the the commodious rear end. It's got the you know everything's very flat. It's got the simple body side. Everything's really sucked in. Single piece tail lights. The round lights at the front with a bar dividing them. But you know when you drive it, it is so robust. It feels like it's made out of iron. It's it's so tough. And um, I will admit to not being the greatest, uh, most experienced off road driver. Uh, on the planet but it this vehicle makes me look really good <laughs> and uh and I'll, I'll i'll describe to you um we had some fun fun with uh with a few of the prototypes actually the whole team uh designers marketeers and uh, planners we we took some of them around our off-road course at uh, one of our proving grounds and we actually had a camping weekend we we uh we, we played out the experience of using one for the weekend in this secret environment, uh, using these secret prototypes. Uh, we had a nice evening watching the sun go down around the fire uh, with a barbecue, with all the tents littered around all over the place. It was fantastic, but the driving aspect was, what really opened my eyes actually was following one of our professional test drivers 
in a leading competitive vehicle, should we say, a trailhawk version, and uh, getting to the bottom of a intimidating looking climb. And then watching this this guy try and go up the climb and then fail and then have another go and fail. It was slippy, the conditions, it just rained. And he made two or three attempts at it and then the walkie-talkie crackled and he said, look, Paul, would you, would you back up? I need to take a run at it. So I backed up and he took a run at it and got over the top and disappeared. And then the radio crackled again and he said, your turn. And I just thought, God, this is going to be embarrassing. You know, this is going to be humiliating, right? And I just drove straight over one go. Um, and I was being cautious as well. So I, I, felt, I felt like a hero when I got to the top. And it, and it reinforced on me the, the capabilities of, of the sport. And, I'm, and, and I've yet to try the Bronco off-road, but I'm sure it's exactly the same. Um, will enable our customers to, to access the wild more easily. It should be a less intimidating process. The vehicles have been designed to do it. They're not. They're not uh, precious. You know, there's contact surfaces where they should be. The ground clearances, all the attributes should be correct. You should be able to feel confident enough to just keep going. And the journey of driving off road should be a lot easier than it is normally. I think more than anything else, a sort of higher calling for this is that we we want to open up the um, the, the world to our to our customers so they can have these incredible experiences. Uh, that we know that they're yearning for, and I suspect some of the fantastic response that we've had to the vehicle is, is I'd like to think, is because people are recognising that in these these vehicles there is an object that could could do that for them. I was thinking actually that this is the perfect time to, for something like this uh, when we're all sort of you know sheltering in place, hunkered down, yearning for the great outdoors, wanting to do something else away from everybody else. You probably couldn't have timed it any better to release. Um, you know, a vehicle that spells out freedom the way that Bronco does and, you know, the great outdoors and, and all of that. I would agree. I think there's some um, some luck, if you like. Uh, so there's a there's a bit of brightness in an otherwise dark situation. Um, but in any case, I think uh, I, I, I sensed, I think we all sensed that the time was right to bring Bronco back. Uh, I think it's well known that this isn't the first time that Ford thought about doing it, but the stars aligned. And and it was the right time. I think there was there was going to be a growing appetite from the from the market, and then we were lucky enough to have all the right technologies, uh, definitely the right ambition, but also the space in our plants to do it and do it really well. Um, and yeah, so fingers crossed, right vehicle, right time. Paul, you mentioned Brand X. To what extent did the designers look at what was out there? and say, okay, we need to do this, we can't do this, we perhaps ought to try to do this? And, and you know, w- what was that benchmarking experience like? Um, we always benchmark. Uh, that's an industry standard. Um, but I think, I think we, we, our benchmarking was very broad. Uh, it all went, it went certainly in terms of, um, it included those vehicles, but it, it also included speedboats and UTVs. Uh, it was very broad, actually. So, I, I think. Now, can you take take examples directly from those vehicles? Absolutely, you can. But why why are you looking at speedboats? Well, we're looking at speedboats because the interior of these vehicles, the, the the Bronco in particular, because the roof comes off and the doors come off, it's going to get wet. So, how do how do industries deal with wet fabric? and wet electronics 
well, let's go and look at the marine industry. It seems obvious to me. We're not going to find the answer to that by, you know, walking into a car dealership down the road. So, you know, we were trying to be quite divergent in our thinking. Um, and we learned a lot through the process of it, actually. Um, and then in terms of the other end of spectrum with the sort of UTVs, I mean, they're pretty extreme vehicles, but they're designed for hammering around the desert at high speed. And we, you know, we're going to be good in the desert and we're going to be good in the desert at speed. So let's take some lessons from that. What could they do? What could they teach us? Um, and then you take all those lessons and you try and distill them into something which is also going to be great to use every single day of the of the week. So there's a there's a lot of um, there's a lot of benchmarking we did, um, but you, you, we absolutely were not going to obsess about you know brand X or Y or Z. We, we just needed to do what was right for the vehicle and its use. Hey, look, we've we've got to take another quick commercial break right now. We'll come back. We've got a lot more yet to to talk about Bronco. We've got questions coming in from the audience as well. But first. A shout out to our good friends at Bridgestone. All right, we're back talking with Paul Wraith, the chief designer for Ford Bronco. You know, Paul, uh, one of the things I thought that Ford did that was so smart with the Mustang is design it for export markets. And, you know, a not insignificant chunk of Mustang production now goes outside of North America. Did you look at the same thing with the the Bronco? And we got a great question here from Dan Neal, who wants to know, did you uh, ever consider meeting the European NCAP standards for safety with the design that you did? It's a really good question, actually. Um, um, The legislative frameworks for different regions are broadly similar but there are definitely differences and there's, when you're trying to optimize a vehicle those differences count for actually a great deal um you know bronco is hugely important in the in the u.s but it is actually a lot less well known outside of the u.s um and so we weren't getting the the same the sense that actually the appetite was was as strong in some other markets and so that in a way, was a bit of an enabler because rather than having to sort of hedge our bets and cover all of these various sort of um, uh, legal uh, um, requirements, we could just focus and do exactly the right thing for the Bronco for this market. Um, but you know, we're a global company, so we're always going to have our eyes wide open to any potential. But in this particular case, I think we made the right decision by by bringing the Bronco back, but bringing it back home. Rather than yeah, I, I, I uh, bet you're right that outside of the U.S. it's not as well known as, say, like a Mustang. Once it comes out, my prediction is you're going to find a lot more people overseas wanting to get their hands on it. Hope so. Um, you know, I don't, you know, we're bringing back the brand of Bronco, um, so um, it will be fascinated to see what the response from overseas is. Um, really excited actually i think john you're right on with that um we've seen that already from our readership and from our youtube commenters people saying can i get it in china can i bring it especially to australia hear a lot about australia which makes sense given the types of vehicles they have over there i think there's going to be a a lot of demand globally for it um what i wanted to ask you is you know you guys are bringing out and making a big deal out of bringing at least 200 plus accessories Um, when the vehicle launches. And personalization is obviously a huge, huge part of this type of vehicle. Um, 
what has that process been like for you working with some of the aftermarketers, partners that you're, you're with? And um, how much of that are you guys going to be doing yourself? I mean, you, you guys have even shown T-shirts and things like that. <laughs> what, like this one? Uh, yeah. <laughs> that was another thing that we did. Well, we were so pleased with the T-shirts, we decided we all ought to do some trucks to go with them. Um, yeah. Um, it's a lot of it's a lot of work. We have a, a very very good accessories team who are, are immersed in that space, and um, they've got to cover a lot of bases. And we've got a lot of different users. Um, as a manufacturer, we want to produce two hundred plus accessories for the Bronco and a hundred plus for the for the Sport um, to make um, uh, to give the 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 the, the buyers the opportunity to make the Bronco that they want as soon as they as soon as they drive out of the dealership uh, and if they change their minds they can come back and get some more but um, um, the uh, relationship with the uh, strategic partners has been very good and I think the uh, the accessories going to provide are going to be seriously useful uh, and expand the role of the, the vehicle. Paul, just to give you an idea of the bandwidth of interest for this vehicle, and you, you're more aware of it than I am, but it's interesting to look at some of the, the viewer questions that are here. And I'm just going to group some of them together. SubGR77 wants to know if a V8 will fit in there. Big Barney wants to know when's an electric version coming. Bob Wilson wants to know if you're going to have a PHEV powertrain. And let's see here. Papa wants to know, why can't there be manual transmissions in all of them? They're brilliant questions. And, and of course, you know that the answer is always we cannot comment on things like that. But I tell you what, more than anything else, I'm the designer. I'm not the engineer. I couldn't tell you if a V8 fitted in it whatsoever. So um, they're, they're, they're comments that we've, we've been seeing um, online for, for a good amount of time and in the, in the commentary. Uh, and every time a comment like that is made, it's always really helpful to to help us understand whether gauge whether the mind of the public is. Um, but I'm but I'm not definitely not the right person to ask about uh, transmissions. So, so Paul, let me ask you a designer question in terms of your colleagues. This this is a huge year for Ford. The F one fifty, the Mustang Mach E, the Bronco. So you guys are in the product development center. Did you go from studio to studio and sort of have a, uh, a little internal competition with your colleagues? You're right. It's a massive year. Uh, and the, the, um, the breadth of work that's going on is stupefying. Great fun. Do, do we pass through the studios and keep an eye on what each other are doing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, we do. Uh, do we steal each ideas from each other? I don't think so, actually, because I think we're all very fixated on doing the right thing. You know, in the case of the F-150, uh, Ahab and his team were, were really fixated on doing exactly the right thing for that vehicle. It's super impressive. And then the um, the Mackie, um, again, very, very different product with a real focused uh, team on that one, making sure that they did exactly the right thing for their, t that for their customers. Uh, and then we were doing our thing uh, separately. And I think that's that's testament. You, you, you name three vehicle lines and they're very, very distinct to each other. They've got, you know, there's no there's no Russian doll thing going on here. You know, they're not mini-me's of each other. They are very deliberate, very distinct statements about what those vehicles should be. And I think it's going to make the, the dealership a really exciting place to be. We found that over the years um, that a lot of these projects, when they're they're in development, get nicknames. 
the vehicles get nicknames or individual properties that are being worked on, you know, prototypes get nicknames. Were there any with this program? No. I feel like I'm going to disappoint you by saying that. No, I think we were just talking about the the Broncos. Um, I think there was just so much personality in that in the first place that that was pretty much pretty much enough, actually. Um, we, we struggle as journalists to distinguish between the two to the audience to find different ways to talk about them. So there's still the the baby Bronco thing or the big Bronco or that that sort of thing. So I was just curious about that. Well, um, internally, of course, we we use we use our very secret code numbers numbers and uh, and of course we don't we don't we don't use those externally. But uh, that will be a shorthand for breaking down which one was was which. But um, we did have a lot of a lot of fun working on them. Um, we um, one of, of course one of the things we had to do is design a new horse actually because the old one was was really out of date. So in terms of bringing a personality to the vehicle, actually we were designing the the new one at the same time as designing the the vehicle. And oh, I'll just tell you this, but um, we also made one. So the the studio that the Broncos were designed in is also the studio where the Mustangs were are designed and have been since the 1960s. And at one end of the studio, right down there. It was a Mustang um, badge, but made sort of full size, attached to the wall. And we thought, well, we should have one of those. So um, we designed our horse, and we, we attached one to our end of the studio. And we stuck it on our wall, but ours is 20% bigger. So that was fun. <laughs> It's like the flags at the Korean border. <laughs> <laughs> well, a little bit healthy competition, that's all. Paul, earlier in the, the show, you, you talked about those peaks on the front hood. And, you know, you mentioned how they really help define the corners, which I find critically important if you're doing real serious off-roading. You know, if you go back in the old days, lots of cars used to have little ornamentation out at the corners there for help in parking situations and yep. the like. And what I found intriguing is not only did you recreate those peaks, you made them functional. They're, they're tie-down spots on, on the front end. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you came to that? And, you know, you had mentioned, you know, the, the way that you designed the tray inside so a cell phone won't go out if the, the vehicle's tipped over. Can you point out a few other little details like that? Oh, there, there, there are several. You're right on the, um, the, the trail site features so that they are very useful. Um, uh, we've worked on ensuring that they can take a good load so you can tie off your kayak or canoe to them um that's that's kind of a helpful feature so they've got a, a an eyelet through them so that you can tie things through but also they've they've got um, holes for bolts as well so that you'll be able to or the public will be able to attach things to them now what they're going to attach i don't know it's up to them because it's their vehicle at that point and they'll adapt it to their use but so whether it's a camera or an additional light or a uh, a flag you know for when you're driving in the dunes uh, we don't know it's up to, it's up to them um, there are some really neat other features, and I just frankly, there are so many of them. Um, let's uh, let's talk about the washout floor that we've got. That's kind of fun. We've got rubber flooring as an option in in the, the Bronco Sport and the, the Bronco because the um, because the doors come off of the Bronco. Um, we assume it's going to get really wet inside. So actually, we've got um, two two options on the rubber flooring. One that has passive uh, drains, so when you drive, the water will just naturally sort of run out. And we also have another with a removable, unscrewable plug uh, in the floor. So when, you, when you're hosing the interior out, the water will just go straight out of the bottom. And so we've had to work on making the floor the right shape 
so that water flows to it naturally, that you don't end up with a puddle at one end and uh, a, a dry-looking um, uh, outlet at the other. Um, so that's an interesting one. You can see in these pictures here, we've also got the, the grab handles that I mentioned beforehand. But the kind of cool thing is that they're they're removable. Um, the, there, are, there are little bolt heads on those um, that all have Bronco bashed into the top of them. And they're there so that the, uh, the customer can take them off, put a different design on, or... I would imagine the aftermarket will be looking at them and thinking, "Gosh, no, there's a there's a thing that we can do." Uh, that was a that was a really fun exercise. The reason why we put Bronco in the head of all of those bolts, by the way, is as essentially as an invitation. Wherever you see one of those on the interior or the exterior of the vehicle, um, it acts as an invitation to get involved, get the tool out, and you can do this. You know, you can make this vehicle your own. It is it is up to you to do something with it. Um, but um, we learned. You know, kind of a really neat little fact that uh, when when Ford was producing Jeeps during Second World War, um, we put an F into the head of the bolts that we assembled them from. Um, so a little nod and a wink back to a little bit of history and just as a reminder that we've been doing this an awfully long time. Paul, it sounds like many of the things, you know, the floor shape, the the bolts, the grab handles and, and the weight of the doors, um, it, it sounds very functional, and it, it sounds as though there had to be a lot of engineering involved. Did you guys work very closely with the engineering team on this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is the, the whole team, you know, the program management uh, team, the, the uh, engineering community, and all of the dis- different areas of that, that group, the chassis guy, everything. It's just a, a unit uh, all fixated. I have to say, you know, we, we gave each other a lot of, a lot of pain, you know, along the way pushing to do the absolute very best possible thing in every area of the vehicle. So, it, you know, um, it could be the best that it could possibly be. Um, and, um, you know, it's a passion business. And we, people are in the industry because they care very much about the subject of car and truck. Uh, and they're on the Bronco because they really, really care about that very much. And it's an enthusiast vehicle. And so you've got even high, more enthusiasm behind it. And then you put all those people in a room together and they just want to reach for the stars. It was a, an, an amazing journey. I'm sure that when I, you know, settle back in an armchair with a big beard uh, and no hair and think about my career, I, I will reflect back upon the, um, the journey that we collectively have taken as being a real high point. I'm sure I will share that sentiment with my, with my co- co-workers. You're coming out of the gates with a bunch of different types of models. Um, they have different focuses. Some of them are a little bit more luxurious. Some of them are a little bit more high-speed off-roading, that sort of thing. How did you determine the usage cases for those? And do you think that the family as it is now will be the size of it going forward? Or you, do you have other things in mind? Um, so the, the segment is very broad. And like I said uh, earlier on, you know, from from – 20-year-old women through to, you know, gnarly guys on the side, hanging off the side of a, of a mountain. I mean, the, the segment is so massive that we have to do a lot. I think that's reflected in the fact that we've dispensed with the typical series nomenclature. There's no XLTs or titaniums or any of that stuff. We've got location-based um, uh, series. And then unusually, you know, it isn't like you start – our typical process for, for buying a car would be series is our start with good and then you get better and you get the best one. But here, you know, you can mix and match. You can bring packs in and uh, even put 35s on the base vehicle. I mean, things like that are just a bit of an unusual proposition. So we can't perfectly uh, preempt 
what every customer will want from their vehicle, but we'll do our absolute damnedest to do our best possible job of providing as many options as we possibly can. So that's a big step change. By the way, those those series, you know, each one has got a very different um, uh, badge actually that sits on the on the on the door or on the front fender, um, and they were design projects in themselves. You know, you define the names, you define the locations, and then you design these great coloured badges. They're all different shapes. Um, they're beautiful pieces of graphic design, and actually, they're reflective. You shine a torch across them, and they pop when they catch the light. There isn't. I mean, I, when I mentioned that, and I reflect back on the comment I made earlier on about the bolt. You know, this wasn't a big picture sort of execution. There it is, stand back. You know, yeah, it's cool, I think, the the Bronco and the Bronco Sport. But as you get closer and closer and closer to it, these details keep unveiling themselves to you. And so um, I'd like to think that as the vehicles sit in people's uh, lives, they'll keep on finding these things and enjoying these these details um, long into the future. I'll bet they will. And look, uh, we're going to have to wrap this up at this point, but... Paul, what a blast having you on the show, and uh, not nearly as much of a blast it must have been in running this program, the design program for the Broncos. I mean, you know, what an iconic statement, and to be able to do that in your career, what an achievement. Yeah, it's been wonderful, and um, we've had a a fantastic team of designers who've been totally focused and brilliant leadership. My boss, Maury Callum, he he drives a early Bronco himself, you know, and and he, he knows he really knows, and so um, it's been a real it's been a real joy. Now it's it's you know this this phase for us is over. Now we move uh, forwards, and that we'll see them in the hands of the public before long. And uh, we look forward to seeing what happens next. Real good. Well, thanks again, and and Chris Pockard, always good to have you on the show. Great, thank you so much for the great discussion. Yeah, and Gary, we'll just keep on doing this. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And thanks, everybody, for having tuned in. Auto Line After Hours is brought to you by Bridgestone Tires, your journey, our passion. And by Borg Warner, propulsion solutions that support a clean, energy efficient world. Visit our website, Autoline.tv, where you can watch us live Thursday afternoons. Get your daily fix with AutoLine Daily and in-depth analysis and interviews with AutoLine This Week. There's all that and much more at AutoLine.tv. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. 
agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.